everyone. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I am especially excited about this next episode because it took me back to my alma mater and a woman who made history when she was named the first woman president of Harvard University. Drew Faust took the top job in 2007, and she was kind of an unlikely candidate, a Civil War historian and a multi-time author who didn't have a Harvard degree. But she went on to lead the university for a decade, tackling thorny issues like immigration and same-sex social clubs, and raising record-breaking amounts of capital, all while fighting to prove an Ivy League education is still worth the rapidly rising cost. Now Faust has passed the torch to her successor, but before she did, she opened up about her tenure running Harvard and her next chapter. This is my conversation with Drew Faust, outgoing president of Harvard University. You've been president for 10 years, and this is your last year. How do you feel? Is it bittersweet? I feel really good about it. I, I think that jobs like a presidency have a certain rhythm, and you move through an agenda, and you accomplish things, and you work together with people, and then it's good to have fresh eyes and somebody with another agenda, carrying, you hope, carrying your agenda forward, but nevertheless bringing new skills and new approaches and new energies to it. So. I feel terrific about what we have been able to accomplish. You were the first woman president of Harvard, and when you took over, you made a point to say, I am president of Harvard. I'm not Harvard's woman president. Why was it important for you to say that? I felt that people were going to label me as special or in a different category or perhaps imply that I was there only because I was a woman. And I didn't want that. I wanted to make clear from the start that I was as real and and complete and full a president of Harvard as any of my 27 predecessors. But I had a very interesting experience in the aftermath of, of that announcement, which is I got letters and messages from little girls all over the world saying how much it meant to them that there was a woman president of Harvard. So I wanted ultimately to be both the woman president of Harvard who could be perhaps an inspiration or a model for women all over the world. But I wanted to make sure that people understood I was as much of a president of Harvard as anyone else. I wasn't a president with an asterisk or, or some special status. I'd love for all the little girls who are watching to learn how you got there. You were born in New York City. You were raised in Virginia. You had three brothers. What was that like? Well, I grew up on a farm. and. I was always a tomboy. I enjoyed raising, I worked in, in the barn raising animals, and I played war with my brothers. But I always was aware that there were privileges they had that I didn't, and that things were expected of me in terms of wearing little lacy dresses at appropriate times and um, exhibiting a demeanor that didn't always seem to me consistent with being as noisy and, and boisterous as my brothers were allowed to be. So I think I had a very astute sense from early on that girls were given certain roles in that society in Virginia in the 1950s and that I was not entirely comfortable with being relegated to such a role. What did you believe about what women could and could not achieve? I did not have very many models of women who were even in the workforce or had careers. My mother 
didn't even finish high school. My grandmother was a force in her own right, but she wasn't someone who worked outside the home. And so I didn't have very many indications of what was possible for women. And the expectation of me when I was growing up was essentially that I would find some man to marry and become a housewife and raise a family. So how did you break out of that? I always was good in school and I loved school. And so as I pursued my educational ambitions, that took me to college and into a world where different expectations prevailed. And I could see, I went to an all women's college, I went to Bryn Mawr College, and was taught by powerful um, intellectual, scholastic, academic women. And so I began to see possibilities in their lives that I was then able to imagine for my own. You had some other firsts. You were the first Harvard president without a Harvard degree. You went to Bryn Mawr, you majored in history, and then you went on to the University of Pennsylvania and became a history professor. I was a, very much a student activist in college and very involved in politics, civil rights issues, Vietnam War protests, and cared a lot about changing the world and having an impact on the world. And when I graduated from college, I worked for two years for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And so I hoped in a very idealistic way to move into maybe urban planning or some area that would enable me to carry on my concerns about public service and changing the world. But I so missed intellectual life and ideas and the kind of debate that is at the heart of a university. So I applied to graduate school at Penn and went back and got a PhD at Penn. And then that led me ultimately to a faculty position at Penn that I held for 25 years. You wrote six books. Tell me about that. I became a historian of the American South and began to explore questions that were not all that distant from some of the questions I'd asked uh, as a young child growing up in a segregated society. My first book, which came out of my PhD dissertation, was about people who defended slavery because I found that so unthinkable and couldn't imagine how people came to convince themselves that this was a position that was um, justified or acceptable. And I think I was projecting some of my questions about people who had embraced segregation in my own home community when I was growing up in Virginia in the 1950s. So what makes people defend the indefensible? And then what makes change? You must have some strong opinions about how President Trump has spoken about some of these Civil War heroes or, or, or not heroes and, and the monuments. We're in a very interesting moment with Civil War memory and some of the challenges that have been made to monuments and um, accounting for the past. I think it's a very healthy moment because to understand what our history has been and to understand that the Civil War was one in which a whole section of the country was defending, fighting in favor of the system of slavery, I think we've hidden from that a lot as a, as a nation and to bring out those divisions and understand them fully and understand the context in which race relations today um, operate is a very important uh, dimension of moving forward as a nation. So you think those monuments and statues should come down? I think it varies. I think that many of them should. I think there are other, others that perhaps we could simply elucidate or explain. So how does one get from Civil War historian to first woman president of Harvard? It's 
about being part of a university over a long period of time and living a life in a university where I came to realize the wonder of education and opening minds and contributing to the growth and flourishing of individual talent and thinking about universities as places where people pursue truth and challenge accepted wisdom and devote themselves to learning and scholarship. So I had come to believe that universities are among the most important institutions in our society. And I began to be invited to take on leadership roles and moved from Penn to Harvard in 2001 to be the head of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, which had just been made a part of Harvard University. And then from there, I went on to become president. Does the being the first woman president part of it, the woman part of the equation, does it come with an extra pressure or sense of responsibility? A lot of eyes were on me, and would I be able to do it? And what would that say mm -hmm. about women generally, not just about could Drew Faust do this job, but could a woman do this job? And I would just have young women beaming at me. People I didn't know, they just would give me the biggest smiles mm -hmm. as if to say, you go girl, it's for us too. And so throughout I felt that I could perhaps be the kind of role model that I didn't initially have when I was a child, but found in professors when I got to college and saw women doing extraordinary things. Amen to that, you go girl. What do you see as your biggest success? I hope that I have made the university a more open place, have expanded access for people from all kinds of backgrounds, points of view, economic circumstances, and made Harvard more affordable and more open, but also made it a place that has felt more welcoming and inclusive once they got there, a place where women would not just feel that they were there on sufferance or students from less advantaged backgrounds would feel they were just there on the margins, but this was their Harvard too, and that they owned Harvard as much as any of the more traditional um, kinds of students who, who might be there. You're listening to my conversation with Drew Faust, outgoing president of Harvard University. Coming up, we discuss the cost of higher education. Is it still worth it? I'm Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. The most oft-used measure of success for a school president is the money that they've raised. And you met or succeeded goals. The endowment is now $38 billion. Do you think this is the best measure of success for your field? No, <laughs> I don't at all. It is important, obviously, to have the resources to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but it depends, of course, what are you going to use those resources for? Mm -hmm. Money is an enabler. It isn't an end in itself. The way our endowment works is the income that it generates through investment um, funds about 35 percent, 35 to 36 percent of our operating budget so that those billions of dollars are working capital that are producing income every year that we then apply to the wide range of activities that we undertake, mm -hmm. research, teaching, financial aid, 
maintaining our buildings. University endowments are a big chunk of the money that funds venture capital firms, that funds the future companies of Silicon Valley. And historically, LPs and, and, and endowments have been very quiet about their strategy and what they care about. There's a big sort of movement within the tech community um, to push LPs to care more about funding diversity and funding, um, you know, not all male venture capital firms, for example. I mean, is it all about just making money or is it about who you're giving that money to? We have had a position that has been articulated pretty um, forcefully in response to requests that we divest mm -hmm. from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. We've had a policy that is our endowment is about funding the core mission of the university, which is teaching and research. It's not a fund that is meant to uh, be a social intervention fund. And so we have not divested uh, in response to the pressures put upon us, and we've not used our endowment as a political weapon or tool. In part, the logic of that is that what what are the issues and how many of them and what are the priorities? Would it be fossil fuels? Would it be diversity? Would it be other kinds of very admirable concerns that might distract from what our core business is, which is funding, teaching, and research. How do we bring down the cost of higher education? That is something we need to get under, under control and address more fully. Technology is going to help with that. What can we do online um, to supplement or replace certain parts of instruction so that we can leave to people the parts that we absolutely need need people for and streamline some of the other parts. I think we'll see some of that coming forward. Uh, but constraining cost is going to be a real challenge for all of higher education. There are a lot of companies trying to disrupt higher education and some say that a Harvard degree won't matter by the time my children go to college. How do you respond to that? We have to make sure we attract the best talent and that's why um, affordability is so important. The experience of being in that community living in that community with other students from whom you learn probably as much as you learn in any class you take. That is the core of what a Harvard education really is. So that it, at its best, the residential dimensions of Harvard education are essential to the full experience of what it can be. And that is not going to be disrupted by a simply online experience. You're not bumping into somebody in a corridor and finding that they challenge you in ways that you never expected or that the ways they're different from you expand your understanding of the world. That is such an important part of what happens both in and outside our classrooms. There's a sense here from you know the heart of Silicon Valley that Stanford has surpassed Harvard, especially when it comes to technology and you know becoming a feeder for you know the biggest and most powerful companies in the world. Is that a fair assessment? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. We um, are different institutions, and I think that's a great strength of American higher education is that there are different emphases and different opportunities that institutions like Stanford and Harvard can offer. I don't want to sit and, you know, have a Stanford-Harvard competition here in front of you and say, oh, we're so good at this. We have a growing presence in technology and in fields of engineering. Our 
students concentrating in engineering have tripled in the last 10 years, so that's an area that I think we're paying more attention but we, than we did a decade or two decades ago. But we also have such deep-seated strengths in life sciences, in the humanities, in the arts, and such a commitment in social sciences and the endeavors that are not simply involved in technology. And we compete very successfully with Stanford for students and for faculty. And so we're very pleased to be Harvard and we expect to remain Harvard. That was Drew Faust, outgoing president of Harvard University. Up next, we talk about the controversial same-sex finals clubs, a topic that students were always talking about when I was there. And Faust opens up about her successor, Larry Bacow. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. What is Harvard doing differently to train the worker for tomorrow? Differently from? Do you think Harvard needs to do anything differently to arm workers with the skills necessary to succeed in a modern economy? Well, there have been some changes in how we approach education over the past decade that respond in part to what you're saying, which is we find our curriculum much more oriented and our students much more eager for hands-on experience in a variety of ways. There tends to be many more internships or um, public service opportunities tied into curricular um, offerings. Doing and thinking are intertwined much more closely. One of the things I've been following as an alum is Harvard's crackdown on single-sex clubs. And Harvard has had a long tradition of all-male finals clubs, as they're called. And more recently, all-female clubs have sprung up. I'm curious how your position on this evolved over the course of your tenure at Harvard and how that led you to the decision that this needed to change in a big way. The Issues surrounding final clubs came into my consciousness almost as soon as I arrived at Harvard as dean of the Radcliffe Institute in 2001 with uh, a lot of debate and discussion about the exclusion of women from these clubs and the centrality of the clubs in undergraduate student life. By the time I came president, therefore, I'd been hearing about these issues for many years and hearing about them also increasingly after I became president, from the dean of the college, from people who were head of the undergraduate houses, and worrying about unsupervised drinking in these independent organizations, the experience of women, sexual assault in these organizations. And they were just a constant drumbeat of issues of inequality and exclusion and student safety related to those clubs. And so in 2016, we issued a policy that became a matter of great debate and dispute, but we thought was necessary to welcome women into full citizenship at Harvard and say that these much valued and sought after spaces from which they were excluded should no longer dominate student life and have a kind of second class status delivered to women at Harvard. So what is the policy as it stands now? The policy is that if you choose to join one of these single-sex social organizations, there's certain privileges to which you will not have access. 
and those are leadership positions in the recognized student organizations that are funded in part by Harvard College, mm -hmm. and that you will not be given um, dean's recommendations for certain fellowships and other honors. There's been a lot of protests and, and people who say that this unfairly targets women who historically haven't had the same access to the privileges and resources that men have had and that men who have been part of finals clubs at Harvard have, have had. What is your response to women who feel this disenfranchises them? Well, the protest coming from women is about the single gender women's organizations right. that grew up to compensate for women's exclusion from the male organizations. But there remained enormous differentiations in the power of those organizations, in the resources of those organizations, and in the centrality to student life of those organizations. They still were a kind of second class mm -hmm. status within student life. We have been concerned about the issues that made women feel they needed separate spaces for themselves. And so a number of these organizations have now said they will continue and they will allow men to join, but they will also have their own activities within the organization. And we want to support the needs of women on campus. But we don't think that these separate organizations are the way to accomplish what needs to be done. Should an all-female organization be given the same status as an all-male organization or an African-American organization, for example? Recognized student groups at Harvard have to admit any student. They cannot discriminate on the basis of race or gender or any other um, identity-based status. They can discriminate on the basis of whether you can sing well enough to get into them or whether you can play football well enough to get into them. That kind of differentiation is acceptable. So we have you know, a variety of organizations that students join, like the football team or the glee club, where you have to try out. But it can't be derived from an accident of birth. So what do you think of your successor, Larry Bacow, and what do you hope that he will accomplish? I am delighted by his appointment. I first got to know Larry um, when I was just becoming president, and he was president of Tufts. And he invited me to dinner at the president's house at Tufts the very first day I was president, July 1, 2007. And he cooked dinner, and he talked about being president and offered to help. And we became good friends. and spend a good bit of time together. I'd come to him with problems, and when the financial crisis happened, we consulted one another. And he joined the Harvard Corporation, which is the governing body. And so I've been the beneficiary of his wisdom on that uh, group ever since. I am delighted that his experience and wisdom will be carrying forward Harvard's next chapter. What do you think will be the biggest challenges for your successor and for Harvard in the political atmosphere? that we're in today. The cost of higher education and how to make it accessible and affordable, that's something that um, any president is gonna have to, Harvard or elsewhere, is gonna have to attend to. Another element is that there's such suspicion and hostility emerging to higher education, with a sense that higher education is not serving a broad public, but a place like Harvard is much too elite and in its impact. How do we reach out beyond our own walls and both do more and explain how much we are already doing 
to improve the lives of people across the country and around the world. So that's an important agenda item for a new president as well. What's next for you? I want to see if I can learn to be a historian again. Really? Yes. So does that mean writing another book? hope so. I hope so. I've got some ideas of different projects that I might pursue, and so I have a sabbatical next year, and I'll begin to investigate some of those and see what might work. What's your advice to future women leaders or women who want to be leaders? What a great question. Um, just believe in yourself. Don't let anyone cause you to doubt yourself. All right. Drew Faust, outgoing president of Harvard University, thank you so much for joining us today on thank you. Bloomberg Studio 1.0. It's really an honor. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Daniel Culbertson. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.